look at its compliance program and to improve the program to satisfy the, the requirement. Welcome to the Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes-Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white-collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode of Hughes Hubbard's All Things Investigations. Today, I'm thrilled to have with me Christine Kang and Brian Silliman, and we're going to visit about some anti-corruption, privacy, and other issues in China and France. So, Christine and Brian, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure. Christine, could you tell us your professional background and what your current role is? Yeah, sure. I'm a partner of Hughes Harbor's New York office. I joined the firm last year. Before that, I have practiced in China for over 20 years. And my practice uh, focused MDB sanction investigation compliance, working several matters with the Chinese SOEs on these compliance projects. And Brian and yourself? Yes, yeah. yeah, so I began with Hughes Hubbard uh, about 15 years ago. Before that, I worked with the Enforcement Division of the Securities and Exchange Commission in Washington began with Hughes Hubbard in Washington, but have been working out of Paris for over 10 years. I am now the managing partner of the Paris office, also part of our anti-corruption and internal investigation practice group, and work a lot with French and European companies on compliance matters. Christine, if I could begin with you, a large number of U.S. anti-corruption enforcement actions under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or the FCPA have originated or involved China. And so it is on the radar, or it should be on the radar, of every compliance professional whose company does business there. And if I could maybe start with, what are two of the three top things you believe a U.S. company should know about anti-bribery, anti-corruption enforcement in China in 2022? Yeah, actually, I think you guys know the Chinese anti-corruption campaign has been ongoing for quite a number of years. And if we look at the practice and the legislations and the anti-corruption enforcement, we can see there is some significant change in China's anti-corruption enforcement. First, it has been escalated. It's, it's not only targeting, investigating or prosecuting one corruption cases. It has been go to the top level, Chinese government's top level planning and designing anti-corruption campaign. So you can see a lot of speeches made by President Xi and political bureau member. That was rare in the previous administration because usually that's procuratorate or anti-corruption enforcement case handling. And also for the government authority in 2018, a ministry of supervision was uh, set up 
leading all the departments for the anti-corruption actions. So that is to a very top level of the Chinese government. And the second thing I would say is something different from the Western anti-corruption regime is that there is a close connection between the CPC rules, the Communist Party rules, and Chinese state laws. So if you look at many documents, it will be said the CPC rules actually plays very important role in the anti-corruption campaign. And also you can see this being reflected in the Ministry of Supervision, because Ministry of Supervision actually, they have two names. It's also CCDI. CCDI is CPC's body. So same group of people, but two different names. And another trend you can see is a continuous trend of tightened anti-corruption campaign. You can see from the statistic, a large statistic of anti-corruption cases. If you look at the Chinese media, almost every day you will see the numbers of people at high level, at the state level, or provincial level, official arrested or investigated or sentenced. So that's tightened enforcement. And the last one I want to mention is if you look at all this enforcement, very rarely it's only one enforcement department. It's always a joint action by several governmental departments, very active one like Ministry of Supervision or Supreme Court, Supreme Procurement. So I will not give you the, I have a, you know, the statistic, but maybe for the time consideration, I just pause here. Sure. So let me turn the focus to another topic right now, the Pilot National Prosecution Program. Could you explain to our listeners what that is and why they need to be, at least have that on their radar, if not concerned about it? This is something very new in China, although Brian know and you know in U.S., in U.K., in Western countries, has been a long time this kind of prosecution, uh, refer, deferred prosecution program. In China, it's, it's quite new. It, it's the Chinese Supreme Procuratorate. They have carried out some pilot project in some provinces and then expanded to 10 provinces. And then they issued a guideline on the compliance third-party monitorship. So that's really something similar like the monitorship with like World Bank or FCPA, BOJ in China, in US or in UK. Basically, the idea for this program is for some economic crimes involving enterprises or executive of the companies, you meet some of the criteria. For example, first, the company plead guilty and the company is in normal business operation and it's voluntary to join this program. And then the Supreme Procuratorate will select from a database of candidate monitors, and this monitor will conduct, will review and assess the compliance program of this company for a certain period. Usually now the Supreme Procuratorate published some typical cases. Usually this period is short, like three months or half months, does not go more than one year. And then after this compliance program, the procuratorate will decide whether arrest this executive of the company or prosecute this company executive, or they will change the compulsory measures or how they will sentence, propose the sentencing for this company. And we can see the Supreme 
Procuratory published 10 typical cases under this pilot program, and many of these cases has been suspended, not arrested, not prosecuted. So far, this published typical case, we only see the Chinese enterprises, not foreign enterprises in China yet. Christine, one of the areas that's always under scrutiny and concern around anti-robber and anti-corruption issues is in the Chinese healthcare sector. So I wanted to ask you, what has China's anti-corruption enforcement looked like in the healthcare sector, and what guidelines would you give to American companies considering that space? Yeah, sure. That's a very important question. I guess you guys all know the GSK case many years ago, not many years, 2014. So that has been very influential. I would say first thing is that the healthcare industry is always a primary focus in China's anti-corruption campaign. Even now, this month, July 2022, you can see a good number of crime cases in this area. For example, the director of the Beijing Municipal Health Commission, Mr. Yu Luming, was removed from the CPC membership and removed from public office. And till end of last year, there were 37 large Chinese hospitals president was investigated or prosecuted. So it really has always been an ongoing tightened area for anti-corruption. And if you look at these cases, the targeted persons or individuals is expanding. You know, it's not only like in the GS case, the foreign companies, it's also, as I mentioned, the government officials, the big hospital officials, and also including now it's expanding to some even clinical trial institute or medical research institute when they buy the appliance, medical appliance. And this kind of case, you can see many cases. And also the punishment is severe. And as I mentioned, some of the hospital president was sentenced very severely. And also, if you look at this area, you will see uh, many different programs ongoing. For example, the National Health Commission has started an inspection regime for all the large hospitals. And all these cases I just mentioned is actually a, a result outcome of this inspection action. And also there are the Chinese Supreme Court and the National Health Insurance Administration has set up a regime to public and share the information for these healthcare cases. And also the National Health Commission started integrity practice initiative to combat red package, you know, in, to give doctors red package money or kickbacks or other bribery practices. So I will pause here is that there are, you know, a lot of cases. If you just go to the media, you'll see a lot of cases and the campaigns, actions, initiative in this area. Christine, could I ask you, what is the Chinese personal information protection law? And what are some of the key pieces of advice you're giving clients on that law going forward? This is a new law. We call it PIPL. It's something like China's equivalent to the GDPR in EU. It took effective in November 1st last year. Some pictures or takeaway you, you want to note that first, this law has extraterritorial effect. So even, for example, 
multinational based in France or in the US, and you are handling some personal information of individual located in China or Chinese citizen, you may be governed by these laws. Or if you do not pay attention to these laws, you may violate the laws. For example, we have a case where multinational in France and they want to conduct an investigation. A senior executive, senior manager in, in China subsidiary, and you must pay a lot of attention during this process because this PIPL and other data security law will apply. First, for example, you need to obtain the consent and you need to, unless you have some statute circumstance, for example, public interest or public health emergency, otherwise you must obtain the prior consent. And also you need to notify this person, otherwise even, you know, you have the information based in the headquarter in France, you still violate the PIPL. And also you need to inform this individual's rights and what he or she can do. And two updates on this PIPL, because in this PIPL published last year, there's a requirement for personal data transfer overseas. Some requirements, for example, if you want to transfer personal data overseas, like to the US or to France, you need to pass a security evaluation under the CAC. CAC is the government authority supervising data protection. It's a cyberspace administration of China. And uh, this was 38, Article 38 of PIPL. And uh, on September 1st, will take effective this security evaluation regulations. They just published in July. So under some cases, you really need to be careful to go to CEC to go through the procedure for the security evaluation. And also the CEC published a standard data protection contract regulation. That's another requirement for you to transfer personal data outside China. It's just a draft for comments. Basically, the requirements, if you know you are transporting, transferring very important data, all these operators are handling like over 1 million individuals' personal data, or it involves sensitive personal data, you must go through security evaluation and you must have standard form data protection contract. Brian, if I could turn to you and some of the developments in your part of the world. What is going on with Sapandu? Yes, well, Sapandu is now a five-year-old, slightly more than five, celebrated its fifth birthday, so to speak. And it'd be tough to overstate the significance of the law in France. You know, the environment when, for those of us working here, have been working with French companies now for, you know, over a decade, it's changed things dramatically in the country. And compliance now is a whole industry companies have developed robust and mature compliance programs. But this also served as an opportunity for Parliament to take a look at the law, to take a look at what's working, maybe what could be improved. And so there has been some members of Parliament who have examined you know, the application of Sapandu over these five years and have come up with some recommendations for potential modifications or improvements. Those have not been passed yet, but they deal with things like the Agence Française Anti-Corruption, how it's conducting its controls, 
whether those should be shortened or more targeted. The CGIP process, the CGIP, again, the Convention Judiciaire d'Entrée Publique, the equivalent of the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, they looked at that, considered it's been very successful overall, but are looking at some changes there, both procedurally, but also perhaps opening it up to individuals, looking at whistleblower protection. So really taking the opportunity to look at the law as a whole. But for the most part, I think that the feedback has been quite positive. And generally speaking, the French government considers it to be a real success story in terms of revamping and revitalizing the enforcement environment here. Ryan, I would like to turn now to the Airbus enforcement action. And I'm not going to ask you to review it, but looking from the very far outside into that enforcement action, it seemed to me to be truly a watershed event for French prosecutors, obviously in the ABC or anti-corruption space, but also for French compliance professionals like yourself who have been talking about compliance for quite some time. And now you had an extraordinarily robust enforcement action directed by French prosecutors at a French company. And it validated, I think, many of the things you and your colleagues have been saying quite some time. So I really wanted to get your opinion on what did the French component of Airbus enforcement action really do for the French prosecutors for Sapondu and, of course, the French compliance professionals such as yourself? Yeah, well, I completely agree. I think it was a, a real watershed prosecution, investigation, and, and settlement. And from the prosecutor's side, I think it was a huge success. I mean, it gave the French prosecutors a huge boost of enthusiasm. They really did take the lead in the prosecution, worked closely and coordinated with the authorities in the UK and in the US, but were really the lead agency. And I think it showed uh, not just to them, but to the public that the French prosecutors can manage a very, very significant case like this. I think it also showed there were elements of it that showed the importance of conducting a thorough internal investigation of the potential benefits of cooperating with the authorities. This is a a concept that still is quite new in France. This idea of proactively cooperating with the authorities, providing information. And even though the size of the penalty was significant with Airbus, it could have been much more significant if you look at the facts that were alleged and read the prosecuting documents. And they received a substantial amount of credit for the thoroughness of the investigation and also their cooperation with the authorities. And so I think that was significant to see that applied in practice because it's something that the authorities had been saying publicly, but to see it actually applied, illustrated to companies that this is something that if they do find themselves in a situation where they're faced with allegations or evidence of potential corruption, to make sure to get on top of it, to conduct a thorough investigation. And then depending on their strategy, if it's something that comes to the attention of authorities, I was wondering if there are any or have been rather any recent cases or settlements around Sepondu that have garnered your interest and that you are talking to clients about. Yeah, there have been a couple. There hasn't been the sort of same multi-billion euro type of case as Airbus. I'll put to the side, there was a, a recent CGIP with McDonald's, but that's a tax fraud case, so not really corruption specific. But there have been a couple of cases that are quite interesting. One involved a company called Bolloré, which is a well-known French group, a conglomerate founded and owned by a billionaire that had a logistics and transport arm 
PR arm and now more recently an electric vehicle infrastructure arm. And they were accused and ultimately settled, entered into a CGIP for corruption. And the facts are interesting because the allegations were that they used their PR arm to provide counseling and public relations assistance in connection with a presidential campaign in Togo. And in doing so, essentially provided 400,000 euros worth of services and only charged the candidate 100,000 euros. They paid the other 300,000 euros out of a separate one of their related companies. And so the allegation was you're giving basically 300,000 euros of these services. And in exchange, the logistic arm of the company received an extension of a valuable port concession. And so it was interesting from a factual perspective to see the type of services, the type of benefits that were prosecuted there, these in-kind PR benefits. It was also interesting because three of the individuals attempted to enter plea agreements at the same time, and those were rejected by the court. They were considered to be insufficient. And so you have the company essentially entering into a CGIP, but the individuals, their plea agreements being rejected. There was also a case involving LVMH, the large uh, luxury conglomerate for trafic d'influence or influence trafficking, which is a subcategory of corruption offense in France. And the facts there are that a security consultant that they had engaged years previously had essentially been using his connections inside law enforcement to get confidential information about ongoing investigations or ongoing matters involving certain of the LVMH group or their competitors. And so even though there wasn't allegations of active bribery there, there was allegations of this individual improperly using their influence, improperly using their connections to get confidential information to help the company. And so I think even though these weren't the biggest cases in terms of the fines and penalties, they illustrate that the prosecutors are willing to bring cases on relatively novel facts and, and really pursue large, significant, influential French companies. Over the past 15 years or so when I've been in space, one of the few phrases that it either universally brings terror, unease, or confusion to the compliance professional, literally from the Department of Justice down to the CCO at the $15 million software company, is the term French blocking statute. I was wondering if we could end by you giving a few words about what the French blocking statute is. Do we still need to be afraid of it? Or what is its current state? And how do you work with clients to help understand it and work with the law itself? It does strike terror and or confusion in a lot of people. And that's partially because it's been on the books for quite some time. I think it was initially passed in 1968, but has there's only been one enforcement action brought for violating the blocking statute. Essentially, what it was intended to do was not purely to block the provision of documents or information out of France to other authorities, and it was really focused on the U.S., but to require the authorities in jurisdictions to use existing judicial mechanisms to get information. So there is an MLAT, Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty, between France and the U.S., and the law was designed to force the U.S. authorities or U.S. companies to go through that process if they wanted to get evidence or information out of French companies or out of France. In the context of an investigation, however, that can present difficulties when you have 
an authority, let's say the Department of Justice requesting documents from a company in France, and that company wants to be cooperating and provide information, but you have the MLAT process, which can take some time. You have the blocking statute sort of hanging over individual you know, people's heads as uh, potentially being violated if you provide that information without going through the MLAT process. So what the authorities have done recently this year is try to clarify and strengthen a bit and provide some greater procedural clarity for companies here. And the way they've done that is to designate an agency in France that is the focal point, the point of contact for when companies receive requests from authorities or from private parties that could be used as evidence in a proceeding. They are required to alert that agency of the request. And that agency, which is called the CISE, is supposed to respond with some opinion, some view on how the company can comply with the blocking statute and the request. So it may decide that the information requested is protected and should not be provided outside of France, in which case the company then has some legal basis for not providing the information, or it may define a procedural way to provide it. So the idea is to give companies a bit more clarity in complying both with their legal obligations in France, but also complying with requests that may come from outside of France. There have been some push for increased penalties and increased fines. That hasn't happened yet. And you know these reforms are relatively new, so we'll see how, how well they work in practice. We are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on the uh, topics we've discussed in this podcast. I'm going to say, number one, you need to go look at this. So the Hughes Hubbard FCPA and anti-bribery report, it is a great resource. It is not only a great resource when it comes out, but frankly, it's a great resource throughout the year. Lots of good stuff. But if they wanted any more information on some of the topics you guys have discussed, what would be the best place for them to go? 2022 year in China is called the compliance strengthening year. So for the companies, especially the multinational who has presence in China, look at its compliance program and to improve the program to satisfy the the requirement that's a, a safer and a wiser advice. And also for the PIPL side, you may look at, there is a large case recently, it's a BB, it's a China's Uber. They were sanctioned by the CEC for 8 billion RMB. It's a very large penalty. So it's involved the use of individuals' personal information. So that's a case you want to look into and take some lessons there to be careful about the individuals' personal information. And Brian, what about the Hughes Hubbard website? What resources do you guys have there that our listeners could avail themselves of. Yeah, on the website. So thank you, first of all, for the plug for the alert, because I think it is one of the more comprehensive resources that you can access. But we do on the website also have more specific alerts on a lot of these country-specific or issue-specific topics. So feel free to check out the alerts. You can access them through the anti-corruption practice group link. And also, you know, happy to link up on LinkedIn as well. We often post our articles and repost and reshare things on LinkedIn. Appreciate well. you taking the time to visit with me, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you.